Welcome to Semio Bites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. Hi there, you're listening to a multi-part episode, so be sure to tune in and subscribe to catch all of this series of episodes to fully experience this topic. How's it going? Going fine, Jonathan. Good to see you again. Long time no see. You as well. Um, it, it's been a while for us. Uh, we recorded some episodes in the summer, and we're about to launch season two. So for the audience, it hasn't been a while. But you and me, it's been, what, six-ish months now? It's been several. I've, there's a lot going on for both of us, I'm sure. So I've lost track of time, but it's been too long. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, that is true. We've both been pretty busy. Um when we uh, started off this season, we spent the first two episodes talking about Extinction Rebellion and your focus with that organization and what was going on, climate crisis, all the details, how connected with your dissertation. And then uh, recently, as recent as, I'm pulling up the article here from Times of Israel, as recent as November 20th, Extinction Rebellion made it into the headlines again, and this time not for necessarily a good reason. It looks like the activist leader of it, Roger Hallam, made some comments that got a lot of folks offended. Does that sound about right? That's right. Spot on. But again, so, I can right to you, to the listeners that there, there was a six-month gap between our last conversation about Extension Rebellion and this event. And where, I, where I've come in those six months is a long path. Uh, yes. In a moment, I'll explain the end of that path. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that is a good thing to reiterate is those six months. So yeah. let's dive into a little bit. Uh, Roger Hallam, he is a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. Uh, he's British, I believe, correct? He is British, yes. And he was publishing a book through, Germ- through a German publisher, right? Correct. Common Sense. Yes. The in the pro- and from what I understand in the process of talking about his book, and talking about what's going on with Extinction Rebellion and the issues, he was being interviewed regarding everything uh, by the newspaper. It's a uh, Die Zeit. That's the time. Is in yes. Germany. Yes. He and so interviews actually there was Die Zeit and Der Spiegel. He had one back to back in two different days. Got it. Okay. So yeah, Die Zeit definitely addressed this. I don't know if Der Spiegel addressed it, but. Uh, according to the article here, okay. According to the article, um, he compared, I'm quoting their words, that he compared the murder of six million Jewish people at the hands of the Nazis to other historical massacres and claimed that the memory of the Shoah, which is the Holocaust, was holding Germany back. The exact words was the extremity of the trauma, a little ellipsis mark there means to cut out a bunch of what he said, can create a paralysis and actually learning lessons from it. So I guess, like from that initial component, I'm still trying to figure out what all the hubbub and upset feelings are about. Well, the, if you, it's hard to find the, there was a, an actual transcript of an interview in Der Spiegel, but it didn't have the hard lines. The hard lines came out of a summary or a synopsis of the interview in Desight. And the line that came out of that interview that made the headlines, and this is going to have a, a pretty 
harsh F-bomb profanity in it. So I'll have to apologize when I'm quoting Hallam as he was quoted in his interview. He compared it to, quote, just another fuckery in human history, end quote, which I grant you is pretty, you know, to the marrow of the bone. <laughs> but you, knowing Roger, I don't know him personally, but he is, well, let me say this first, every rebellion, every revolution has its lightning rods. Those people who are out there attracting all the resistance, you know, attracting all of the opposition and getting in the face of the enemy, they're, out, they're just out there being lightning rods. That's Roger. He's outspoken. He's confrontational. He's iconoclastic. He's just, you know, in your face with what he thinks, and he does not mince his words. Now, having said that, um, that phrase that he used, just another hmm in human history, is what really incensed everyone, uh, especially in Germany. Germany has now refused to publish his book, and the German Extinction Rebellion group has, has threatened, I don't know if they've actually done it yet or not, but they've threatened to just leave Extinction Rebellion altogether. They basically said Roger Hallam is no longer welcome in Germany, and XR Germany is seriously on the verge of just separating from Extinction Rebellion International. So it's dividing the movement, okay? Mm -hmm. And he did come out and apologize. He wrote an apology. It was published in Der Spiegel. It was published in Die Zeit. And he did an email about it. And he did a Facebook post about it. So the hubbub of it got him to apologize. But the thing is, it, they, his own people turned against him inside Extinction Rebellion. There was a major movement inside Extinction Rebellion that probably hasn't died down yet to throw him out of the group, to force him to, to just quit Extinction Rebellion. Well, the problem with that is Extinction Rebellion, its core principles are based on decentralization, autonomy, and inclusiveness. And so it's not supposed to matter. He could be a rabid anti-Semite, and it's not supposed to make a difference if he wants to stand on what Extinction Rebellion stands on. Now, they do have anti-Semitism as something one of our principles says, we don't tolerate this, rightly so. But that was not an anti-Semitic remark. And so many people took it to be an anti-Semitic remark that that's what blew it up. So that's really kind of the, the fuse on the bomb was his remark. And it being taken as him being anti-Semitic was the bomb that blew up. Got it. Okay, so while, while you explain that, I was trying to see if, the ADL made any comments. Um, they probably have, but I couldn't find it immediately regarding Roger Hallam. Uh, I asked one of my neighbors, because I live in an Orthodox Jewish community, and asked um, what they thought about Extinction Rebellion. And they said, oh, it's that sign that's been out in our community. It's talking about climate crisis and everything. I said, yeah, exactly. Apparently, the co-founder made this type of comment. And not only have they not heard of it, but it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, sounds right. Let's have a drink. So um, I, I guess there's two components here for that. Because if we're, I'm trying to look at it not as a, not as a, is the comment, how, how do I phrase that? The issue wasn't, did he offend somebody? Because obviously he did. The issue is, is, is his comment valid? And is it, or is it invalid? Should it not, should it, 
be connected whatsoever. And I have a problem when we take a public person, they make uh, goof up in one area of their life that's not necessarily related to what their role is, and that it applies and locks them out of everything else. And I kind of have that problem because I work in a college environment, I see these microaggressions uh, where one example is the Me Too movement. I, if somebody had something happen a few decades ago, we need to judge it by a few decades ago. But it, if it has nothing to do with what somebody's doing today, for example, let's say 20 years ago, I took $5 from a cash register, and today I'm writing a paper on history. Should I be no longer valid as a historian because I took money 20 years ago? And that, that's one part of my issue. The other part of the issue, though, here is what he said is not necessarily not true. Not necessarily not true. You mean, let's take the two negatives out. It's possibly true. What he said is true. Human history Factual is messed speaking. up. Yes, uh, in my dissertation, I had to go into the historical trends of anti-Semitism between Jews and Christians, right? I had to delve right. into it. It's not the first time something's happened in Jewish history, nor is it the first time something happened in all of history. Millions die over all sorts of things, whether it's the latest drug that turns out to have cancer in it, or if it is because of climate extinction that's occurring, that the crisis, that type of thing, or may, maybe it's because of a war. I mean, yes, the show of the, the Holocaust was a horrible thing, and we need to never forget in a sense that we don't allow it to happen again. But again, it's exactly what he described it. And that's, that's the thing. It's just another part of human history. And if I was to look on the Jewish end, I could use the Crusades as an excellent example. Or, or we could dive into other things. I mean, if, let's say if we take it from a Christian perspective, in Christian history, there was this period called the Reformation. That got pretty bad. Well, go even further back. Look what the Spanish did to the this, uh, whole of the Americas on the Western side. I mean, yeah, they decimated Mexico. <laughs> I mean, it's partly disease and infection, but it was also just random. Well, not random, but systematic slaughter. You know, they planned battle plans. They had superior weapons, and they just went in and systematically slaughtered whole people groups. Same yeah, thing. So, same thing in America by the Europeans. Yes. Yeah, so actually, I'm reading farther into this article, and he actually, Hallam addresses this in his interview. He says, the fact of the matter is millions of people have been killed in vicious circumstances on a regular basis throughout history. He then cited the Belgian colonists who went to the Congo in the late 19th century and decimated it. Right. It is history. Right. It's, I don't think the issue is whether or not it's factual. I think the issue has to do with what else is happening in Europe at the moment. And this is a way to retaliate, I guess. Do you, do you track with what I'm saying? Yes. The ADL did a recent study and they concluded that I think it's over 70% of Europeans don't know what the Holocaust was. ADL, Anti-Defamation League? Yeah, the Anti-Defamation League. I have, I'd have to find the exact facts. They did, a, they did an event uh, several months back on anti-Semitism because of all the synagogue shootings. And I went to it and they actually talking about how many people don't know about the Holocaust in today's youth even, and that the numbers are staggering, and that there's one in four people who believe that the Holocaust didn't happen, and that there's a, 
there's even higher percentages for the amount of people that actually espouse anti-Semitic beliefs. And I think what you have here is this horrible situation of we are dealing with a, an increase of anti-Semitism in Europe right now, especially in Germany, who is not necessarily taking an active stance against anti-Semitism. And then he happens to be interviewing with a German paper about a book he's publishing through a German publisher, which already looks bad on the optics because of Germany's role in the Holocaust. Uh, well, it depends on how much the book has to do with the Holocaust, I think, or should. Whether it does or not is another question. Well, let's say there's nothing in it about the Holocaust whatsoever. What you have here is somebody's talking to a German paper about a book he's publishing in Germany, and he's making light of the Holocaust, and oh my goodness, it could be more anti-Semitism. No, now let's hold it right there. He is interpreted as being be uh, um, minimizing or diminishing the Holocaust. That's the way I he wanna, was interpreted. Let me That's clarify. That's not where he was not, coming from at all. Let me clarify. I'm not stating my position. I'm saying how the average reader could look at this. That's right. That's right. Well, the, the average reader didn't read the interview. They just read the follow-up, the flash out. Yeah. But anyway, Which, let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me explain something about Hallam's views here. Okay. There are two senses in which he's an extremist, even within XR. Okay. Most of XR, Extinction Rebellion, most of Extinction Rebellion, especially among the scientists, they look at what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for the United Nations, what their scientific consensus says is going on. And it's, it's hellaciously frightening. I don't, I don't want to diminish the IPCC, but it's science by consensus done in a political organization with an economist faction influencing how it's presented. And it's about two years out of date by the time they publish a report after it goes through review and consensus and all kinds of discussion. And so it takes them about 18 to 24 months to take the research and report on it. So even, even at that, Extinction Rebellion takes the IPC, it's the paradigm, it's the scientific consensus paradigm of what climate science is saying, okay? Now, Roger and a whole lot of other scientists don't agree with it. They think they're playing it down. They're playing it conservative. It's a lot worse than they're saying. And how is on that end of the spectrum? He, he, he usually argues from the IPCC in this interview he did. But when, when you get him talking about his own views of things, he's, he's more extreme. The IPC says, IPCC most recently said, we have like 10 to 12 years before we've exhausted the carbon budget, and we've gone over the tipping point to where there's anything we can do to keep things from happening. They're already saying, this is the IPCC, is already saying we're going to see five degrees centigrade warming. That's about 15 degrees Fahrenheit. We're going to see five degrees centigrade warming by the end of this century. Now, that sounds like a long time, and it doesn't sound like a whole lot of heat, but you're talking about the desertification of everything 40 degrees north and south of the equator. That goes to Canada, and it goes to way below the Sahara in Africa, desert, okay, about 2100. That means if you haven't moved north and started growing your own food, you're going to be up shit creek, pardon my French. But anyway, that's my point. See, he, he's, he, that's the IPCC view. His view is we're going to have societal collapse within a decade. 
because the food supply is the cornerstone of society. If you can't eat, you're going to be in the streets fighting to food to get food. If you can't get food, if you can't go to the grocery store and buy food, and your money's no good to buy it from your neighbor because he doesn't have any either, guess what you're going to be doing? You're going to be fighting tooth and nail to eat and drink. And he believes we're headed there five to ten years. And he's not alone. There are others who believe it, too. Guy McPherson um, is, is probably one of the best. And he's been saying this for 30 years. Uh, he's been a climate scientist for over 30 years. And he started talking about this a long time ago. Um, trying to think what the name of his book is, but it escapes me. But anyway, that's one side in which he's an extremist. He sees the consequences of the climate crisis we're in as being more severe than what the scientific consensus is saying through the IPCC. The other sense in which he's kind of an iconoclast or an extremist <clears throat> is in who he thinks respons is responsible and what kind of people he thinks they are. He thinks they're fascists. He thinks they are fascist capitalists. And I think he's right. He thinks, I've used the phrase a hundred times and I'll use it a thousand more before I let go of this. We are ruled and run by a 1% fascist cabal of oligarchs. Actually, they're about one one thousandth of a percent. And the other 0.999% are a corporatocracy that is kind of their Praetorian guard. They secure and protect the wealth and power of that tiny elite of cabal oligarchs, fascist capitalist oligarchs. They secure and protect them. They own the governments. They secure and protect their their oligarchs, and that's the one percent. You put those oligarchs and their corporatocracy together, you've got the one percent. The government's just their meat puppet show, and their their agenda is to eliminate ninety to ninety nine percent of the human population because we're just in the way. We are human resources to be exploited to death or exterminated depending on which comes first in terms of them getting their exit strategy finished and their uh, escape plan implemented. And they're working on it now. What do you think of this whole SpaceX program is about with Elon Musk? I mean, these guys are the front men for their escape plan and their exit strategy. Why do you think they're drilling, drilling boreholes in New Zealand? They're underground townhouses. Why do you think they're building artificially intelligent robots, security patrols on the surface? I mean, it all starts coming together when you look at it from that fascist elite perspective. He's not alone in this. I agree with him. I don't count. I'm a nobody. But Chris Hedges agrees with him. Noam Chomsky agrees with him. I mean, and, and the, vo the chorus of voices that see it this way is growing and growing rapidly. Uh, anyway, it's um, that fascist capitalist view is for, for his view of things. And so is his view that the science is kind of still kidding around and lying to us. See, that puts him kind of out there on the periphery, but you won't remember this because you're not young, you're, you're, you're too, too young, but the phrase, the end of the world is we you know that acronym, failed talking, the end of the world as we know it, that was a, a laughing stock. It was scientists would just giggle when you would use that because it was just the most conspiracy kook idea that these crazy survivalist militias were promoting. And they would just laugh. Nobody's laughing now. Nobody is laughing now. 
because the end of the world as we know it is one or two generations away at most, and it's going to be hell on earth. Not for me. I'm old enough. I'm going to be gone by the time that the, the real shit hits the fan. But you, my brother, <laughs> anybody under 50, you need a plan to move north and high. Get in the mountains, get elevation, and get acreage, and learn how to survive. I know it sounds like a prepper, prepper kind of survivalist thing. This is what's coming. Don't do it alone. Try to get a community of like-minded people to go with you. But that's my advice. That's where we're going, I believe. Well, maybe it's a good thing that um, Jewish communities are a little isolationist. And we're preparing in a way. Well, I hope so. Uh, and you're almost in the right area because up there around Portland, you're pretty close to which, where you need to be. Don't well, be coastal, though. Get away from the coast. <laughs> come, come that day and age, um, I'm certainly hoping I'm in the land of Israel. So well, we'll see. That's a different I, life altogether. I have to confess, I haven't looked at what the map, the 20, 30, 50, 100 year maps look like for Israel, but they're pretty coastal. But you do have a mountain range, right? Yep. There, there are mountains there. Yeah. So uh, on one hand, I, I look at, I mean, for, for me, I could become paralyzed. I'd be like, there's just so much to do. Why even bother? Or there's too much. On the other hand, I could freak out and try to do everything. And I've kind of tried to land in, like I've, I've been on both sides. I'm kind of trying to land somewhere on the, I want to do what I can when I can. It may not make a difference, but uh, I'm trying. I Believe me, <laughs> I, I'm on the merry-go-round. It's, it's, it's really, what's her name? Kubler-Ross cycles of grief, right? <laughs> you think, you look at the way it's presented when you just at the surface level, when you look that up online, you look at the graphs of it and all that kind of stuff. It, it comes across as, well, you start here with a shock event and you go through uh, disbelief and then you get mad and you get frustrated and you go into despair and then if you manage it you can work your way out of despair into acceptance and adaptation and integration and you move on that's not how it works at least it didn't no. for me it's a merry-go-round <laughs> it's not um, a you know? there's this one meme going around there, there I, yeah there's this one go ahead what you're describing to me is this meme that went around it shows um Screen one is other people's journey, and it shows point A to point B, a straight line. And then screen two, it says my journey, and it's this crumbled up ball of wire. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I've seen that meme. That's not a bad, not a bad analogy. I don't know, man. It's uh, I believe in. I guess the way I would say it is: expect the worst and prepare for the worst, because that way, if the worst doesn't happen. You still didn't make a mistake. You know what I mean? Now, let yeah. me say this, and I'm going to plug another organization here, and then I'll finish my Extinction Rebellion story. I'll come back to that point. There's another group started by a fellow named Jim Bendell. He's also UK, and it's J-E-M, Bend, E-L-L, B-E-N-D-E-L-L, Jim Bendell. He's a UK. I want to say he's a PhD, and I want to say it's in sociology or social sciences, and some other related discipline. But anyway, he's one of the extremists in terms of where he thinks things are going. He wrote a paper called Deep Adaptation, a map for navigating climate something. 
Okay. Uh, it was a pivotal paper, but it's disparaged even within the activist community because it wasn't peer reviewed. It didn't get published. Blah blah blah. The the academic you know, whipping post that you have to live with to get something published. But his paper was spot on, and uh, he he has formed this group called Deep Adaptation based on his paper. And their focus is on how you come to live with the truth and reality of what's coming. Just personally, how do you wrap your head and heart around the truth and reality? Now, everybody knows they're going to die, but they never think about it until they're on the verge of death, which is interesting. You know you're going to die. I've known it since I was single-digit years old because I had puppies die and I had goldfish die. You know, like every kid, you know things die. And you realize, oh. I'm one of those things. I'm going to die. And that's kind of a hurdle in maturity, right? But now that you're a mature adult and you know that you're, you know, you're middle-aged or millennial or a boomer like me, you're going, yeah, I'm really going to die. And it's coming in my life just individually fairly soon, right? Well, mm -hmm. deep in is about realizing a lot of us are going to die. Massive numbers of us are going to die. And it's going to happen to every age group uh, pretty suddenly. The ones who are going to get out of it are the oldest ones. But like I said, I, th I think it's around 50 years old. If you're 50 or younger, you'll see you have about, I would say, at least 50-50, and that's optimistic. Worst case, more like 15% chance that you won't have to watch your children die. That's worst case. Middle case, 50-50. You want to be wildly optimistic, there's a 15% chance that only 15% of the people will have to watch their children die. But none of those are pleasant cases. So what Bendel's work is about is how to wrap your head and heart around you personally, accepting the fact that if you're under 50, you're likely to die fighting for food or water or just for random violence in the streets. Because And this is my opinion speaking. I think there will be two forces in the streets when this happens, when the societal collapse hits. There will be a militarized state nationalist force that goes from your local sheriff's department all the way up to UN troops. They'll be in the streets. And then come three o'clock in the morning, it'll be like Mad Max. It'll be marauding, ravaging, rampaging parasites, you know, living off whatever they can steal and kill for. Those will be the two main forces in the streets, I believe. I mean, this is an apocalyptic view of things, but <laughs> this is where we are. And Vendel's Deep Adaptation Movement is about wrapping your head and heart around that yourself and then trying to figure out how you take those that you love and cherish most into the same place where they can wrap their head and heart around it. And that's, yeah. those two things are big. Those are the main challenges for every individual on the planet today. Most of us don't face it. I'm just beginning to, and I've been working on it since I started my dissertation <laughs> back in September of 2018, you know, because uh, this is where the dissertation was going. But it's, it's, it's coming. It's coming sooner than we think, and it's going to happen a lot faster than we think. I'll give me an example of where the science was off. One of the real tipping points in climate crisis is well, climate and ecology crisis, 
is when the permafrost starts thawing, you know, the, that hard frozen ground around the Arctic Circle and north of the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. It's been frozen for thousands of years. It's permanent frost layer. When that starts thawing, it's going to release massive amounts of methane. And methane is shorter lived than CO2, but it's vastly more toxic, like orders of magnitude more toxic. So it's one of the greenhouse gases that will put the greenhouse gas effect on steroids. Okay, it's already CO2. There's never been a human experience of CO2 at the level that it is today. Never, ever. 800,000 years of history, it's never been as high as it is today. 415 parts per million. The highest it's been before that was 300. 800,000 years, and in the last 400, we went straight line up to 415 parts per million because of four cycles of industrial revolution. That's the bottom line. We did this to ourselves. Revolution. Here we are. Now that's just the CO2. When the methane gets kicked in, and the IPC scientists were saying, as little as four or five months ago, they were saying it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen soon. It's going to happen in like 2090, so like 70 years away. Started happening last month. So. How good is the science if they say, oh, no, 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 no need to worry. Well, we should worry because it's going to happen, but not in this generation. It'll be 70 years down the road. No, it was last November, October, November of this year. It was August, actually. Hey, Terry. Yeah. Did you, did you ever see the film The Day After Tomorrow? Yep. I say. Yeah. What's what this is bringing this to mind? Because in, in in the very beginning, they have a, all these scientists get together and say we're going towards this, and it's gonna happen if we don't make our change. But we have time, and then a matter of days come, and then everything happens. That that's Hollywood. I mean, I'd be the first to say that's Hollywood for two reasons. One. They didn't show you what came before the Ice Age. They showed you that the Ice Age showed up in a matter of days, right? Well, well, yeah, but I guess my point is not that the survival end of it, but it sounds like we're repeating the script of a Hollywood flick here. Hey, we're going to take our science and say we've got time, and then we're being proven wrong. That's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. Here's the thing. The first public kind of acknowledgement of all this was with the uh, Club of Rome report, Limits to Growth, which if I remember correctly, came out, I want to say, 73, early 70s. Al Gore read a Club of Rome report, and he started the Climate Reality Project not much later. It was before he was VP. That's the oldest of its kind that I know of, and it's still going strong. The limits to growth was really about the, the, the overpopulation problem that was anticipated by the Club of Rome study. And they said overpopulation is going to run us out of resources by the early 21st century. So they were right. But put yourself in the seat of a fascist capitalist oligarch. And you read this report in 1973. By 1980, The fossil fuel companies scientists had done their own study and internally they reported that by the 21st, early 20th 20th century, 
we'll have over 400 parts per million carbon dioxide in the air, and we'll be within a decade of runaway greenhouse effect. They were exactly right. This was 50 years ago, and they hit it on the nose. We're at 14, 415 parts per million going into 2020. Well, what did they do? They learned a lesson from the tobacco companies. Don't spread this around. You need to kill this information. You need to bury this information. You need to disinform the public about it. You need to propagandize it. And you need to sit on it and make all the money you can between now and then. And that's exactly what they've done. So let me it's get this right. Exactly the same scenario as the tobacco companies, except it's the fossil fuel and other fossil-related energy. So let me get this right. The tobacco companies do this. We find out, the public finds out, they get mad. Well, how dare you? Tobacco companies are supposed to be punished from it. The fossil fuel industry does this. And we kind of find out. And then we're like, yeah, maybe it's not real. Is that, is that what's happening here? Where we have the exactly same situation, but we're just, are we an ostrich just sticking our head in the sand? Exactly. It's, it's starting to fail, though, because if you look at the coming election, Sanders and Warren are the only viable chance for meaningful politics for the rest of our lives, even your kids' lives, even my grandkids' lives. We're the only, they're the only viable ticket, and they're a weak ticket. If they, if they make it to the ballot, I'll be amazed. The ticket ought to be Sanders and Warren, president, vice president. That's probably the best shot we've got for viable politics. And it's a long shot at best because, like I said, the government consists of nothing but the meat puppets of the corporatocracy. I mean, look what the government's doing to the environment. They're, they've opened, what's it, the Tongass National Forest in Alaska? last largest national reserve in North America, Congress National Forest in Alaska. President Trump signs an executive order that allows the fossil fuel companies to go in there and start exploring and extracting fossil fuels. Uh, it, I mean, it's insane. So yes, you're right, but people are waking up. If you conduct, if you look at late polls, on just general public reaction to the issues of climate change, climate change, the vast majority says yes. Do you think you'll be affected by it in your lifetime? Majority says yes, I do. And, and about 30% said yes, I'll be severely affected. But is the media telling you this? No, why not? Who owns the media? The corporatocracy. You're not gonna hear the truth following it in the media. You have to go, you have to find marginal, disparaged news and, and information sources that are not underwritten by American corporatocracy. I mean, this is global fascism. And, I mean, I'm going to milk the analogy here. Global fascism, it's not nationalistic fascism anymore. It's global. It was nationalistic in Germany. It was nationalistic in Italy. But now it's not. It's global. It's all the governments of the whole planet. Putin in, in Russia, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, what's his name in England that just got in as the prime minister there? Um, can't think of his name. It escapes me at the moment. Is that Boris? All, yes, yes. These are all Trump clones. I mean, look at them. They're Trump clones. 
And what did they do? Look what Bolsonaro did in Brazil. He started setting fire to the Amazon. Why? So they could clear cut it and raise cows for beef eaters in America. They have big ag. They're the ones behind that. You know how much of the Amazon forest they take down? They take down a football field every 15 minutes. And I, I, I have to just kind of say, you know, that's a noble gesture, but, you know, back on it. When people tell me, hey, I'm going to go plant some trees. I said, really? Do you think you can outrun a corporate bush hog, 50 of them running at a time in the Amazon rainforest? I don't think you're going to win that race. I don't care if a million, billion people around the planet start planting a tree a day. They're going to lose that race because it ain't just happening in Brazilian Amazon. It's happening in rainforests all over the planet, including Indonesia. Well, and it takes time to grow, too. Let's say everybody did it and you were able to try to outpace it. The, the time it takes to grow is too long. You've got five to ten years best case before they become efficient recycling carbon dioxide out and putting oxygen back in. It doesn't happen the day you plant the tree I know, doesn't. <laughs> on any scale. Same well, thing it, for vegans. I mean, I, I, I think people should be vegan. I think they should go as, as off-grid electrically as they can. You need to move north and move high up. Get acreage and become self-reliant. Solar, wind, water, whatever you can do for energy. Get off the fossil fuels. You need it doable and self-sustainable. That's the goal. Um, Peggy and I are going to make a small move in that direction, possibly. But anyway, that's this is what we're facing, and and it's a losing battle because it's a global fascism now, and and the 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 gas chamber this time is the whole freaking planet. You're you're talking not metaphorically, but literally there because it's going to be the gas is killing everybody. <laughs> that's correct. I'm not being metaphorical or analogical. Or, or no, I just. I wanted to toss that out there since people seem to get offended at the slightest comment. I want to make, I want to toss that out there say this is a literal statement. Yes, it is. So. I mean, the only thing I could take out of that is this time. I mean, you know, come on, Jonathan, you know me, I'm not anti-Semitic at all. No, I know you're not. No. And, so, and, and I wouldn't make a statement like that if it weren't an apt historical analogy. That's all Which I'm I guess saying. that's that's part of the struggle here. If we wrap this back to Helen, is that he's making an apt historical statement, and it's being misconstrued very extremely. And so, I, I guess that's part of my frustration is is that we have, to use a Christian phrase, we've decided to go and put the guy on a cross instead of listen to what he has to say. Very much so. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good reference. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> so I, that, that's the part that boggles my mind. Now, is there anti-Semitism? Yes. Are there a lot of anti-Semites in the world? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I see the stats. I see the numbers. I see what people believe. I see what's happening on a day-to-day basis. It's, it's astounding. It's shocking. But it's reality. Do I think Helen's an anti-Semite? If I was to go judging based just off what I've read about his interview, no. No, I don't. I don't know him. And I don't know what he truly believes or any of those types of things. But was his interview anti-Semitic? Resoundly, no, it was not. He was stating factual statements and he got the people offended. Should the Holocaust be repeated? No. And should we minimize it to say, oh, it was no big deal? No, but it's different. When you're dealing with something like Holocaust, we're dealing with something that feels more intentional than what's happening with climate crisis. 
climate crisis, people are plugging the ears, la, 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 and they don't realize the concluding remarks versus with Holocaust era, people had to have known what was going on with German nationalism at the time. They just chose to not, they just chose to ignore it. And I think that's part of the struggle is maybe the reason everybody's so offended is because they feel guilty because they would have done the same thing. Possibly so, possibly so. And Germany, uh, supposedly, I mean, I, I worked with a fellow, one of my best relationships at XR as a German guy. Um, he, he's youngish, probably your age, closer to your age than mine, maybe even younger. And he has a, just an astonishing background. He's worked with the United Nations at leadership level, uh, kind of like interning at the at Senate or Congress, you know, kind of like that kind of level of, of involvement. UN University, he worked there, went to school there. Uh, so he's real astute. And he's very well-traveled. My God, he's been all over the world. Um, but anyway, he's in XR. And he's in what I would call the primary circle. Because they're, they're not a, a managerial hierarchical organization. They're what's called a holacracy. H-A-L-O-C-R-A-C-Y. Which is a very decentralized, very autonomous driven. Okay, Each, each part is as much as the whole but there's an anchor circle and all the other circles build themselves around its image if it's done right anyway he was involved at the anchor level in working with me in a group i joined called scientists for extinction rebellion in the uk and they were a new group i was one of the founding members and they were a new group and they were just starting to figure out how they were going to organize and he got engaged to help them do that in the model of the holacracy that is the constitution, literally, of the Extinction Rebellion movement. And I got to know him, and he's German. And I was asking him about all this. And he's, he, had the same, he took essentially the same take you and I are. The question is, was he provocative? Yes. Was he confrontational? Yes. Was he inflammatory? Yes. That's Roger. Just like me, Jonathan. You know me. I'd rather pour gas on a fire than, than not, you know, <laughs> when it's comes to <laughs> ideological matters, right? So he's very much like that. So he was all of those things. But the crucial question is, was he lying or mistaken? And the answer is no. He was telling the truth in a way that got your attention and made you think about it, even if it made you have too much emotions about it, that's your problem. See you know what I'm saying? That's kind of where he was mm -hmm. coming from. And, I, and my friend Sven saw it exactly the same way as a German. And his explanation to me was, you have to understand that in the German culture, our part in that history is, if, if I were a Christian, I'd say, and I'm quoting him, if I were a Christian, I'd say, that's the cross we bear. And we aren't happy about it. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. a very hot emotional guilt burden, you know, shame kind of thing for a large, large section of the German culture. So he, he's, he was pretty much on the same page we are, I think, that it, that it was true, provocative, inflammatory, confrontational, you know, absolutely. Um, but didn't miss on the facts and didn't miss on the history at all. Now, let me finish up the story about my part. Okay. In that 
engagement with scientists for Extinction Rebellion as a founding member and working with Sven on organizing them around the way the holacracy and constitution as a whole for the movement works, these, these cliques of what I would call dilettante activists, they're, they're little power cliques all over the organization. They're, they're all over every human organization, everywhere. Little power cliques who kind of backstab and gossip. And there's a great concept. You heard the phrase gaslighting? I've heard the phrase. What it means is try to figure out a way to make you feel insane. I try to drive you mad with some kind of manipulation or scheming, gaslighting. And passive aggressive is the first weapon. The first weapon in gaslighting somebody is to be passive aggressive. And, and that's exactly what happened to me with Extinction Rebellion US. I got gaslighted completely out of that circle. They wouldn't communicate with me. They wouldn't answer my emails or phone calls. They wouldn't engage me at the national level. And I had volunteered to engage at the national level. And within two months of joining, they didn't even want to hear from me. They wanted me to keep my little local XR Orlando group, but they did not want to hear from me at the national level. Come to find out, XRUS is not at all aligned with the rest of the organization. The group in the, the top circle, if you will, at XRUS is pretty much, you know, we'll do it our way. Thank you very much. Leave us alone. And apparently the UK has just kind of turned a blind eye to that and left it alone. Um, so I, that's how I got connected with the UK people because I couldn't do anything here but my little local group, which wasn't going anywhere. Uh, so I started looking for connections in the broader global international organization and ended up dealing with some people in Western Europe and in the UK. And it was it was very good, except when I got really engaged and really started getting involved in making things happen, the same kind of passive-aggressive, gaslighting, powerly, dilettante activist silliness broke out. And the straw that broke my back that made me leave Extinction Rebellion was just last week. You know me, I'm a project manager. That was my profession for 20 years. Before that, I was a tech for 20 years. So I'm a really good project manager. And the, I'll, I'll tell you, the closest thing I've seen to a miracle lately is that Extinction Rebellion has been able to pull off its three rebellions, October 2018, April 2019, and October 2019, three rebellions. And in this last one, over a thousand people got arrested and tens of thousands of people showed up and they locked down London, downtown London, five activist areas. They completely locked it down. And they did so in violation of a ban on them even getting together. In October, they weren't supposed to have any activist movements. The city had passed a ban on Extinction Rebellion movements and that just threw gas on the fire. I mean, but the miracle is they were able to do this using social media, Zoom calls, and email. No project management whatsoever. They planned it on the fly, they executed it on the fly, they cleaned it up on the fly, and pulled it off. That's phenomenal. So anyway, I wanted to bring some project management in for Scientists for Extinction Rebellion and found out that it wasn't going to go anywhere. But they had a project management app kind of an interesting side story there, but I won't go into it. It's called Basecamp. It's a web-based project management tool. It's a really good one. And they had gotten a subscription and were using it, and there were 8,000 users on a $99 a month subscription, which is why they had to get off. 
But anyway, they were still using it. And I was the user of it. And I was kind of starting to do tutorials and help people learn about project management in Scientists for XR. And then this Roger Hallam thing blew up. And there was a there's a message board in Extinction Rebellion at the top circle of the organization. And of course, the message board just blew up under a Roger Hallam topic and immediately got divided on the on his side and against him, advocates and, and critics. Well, I immediately stepped up as an advocate. And somebody gaslighted me behind the scenes and contacted their tech team and pulled a little thing out of context and said, he can't say this, it violates this principle. And the guy just pulled my ID and then sent me an email and said, because you said this in one of your posts, your ID's been pulled. That was the straw that broke the panel. That's the point where I said, you know, they're not going to make it because the, the split over Hallam has divided the group. The movement has split it right down the middle. And I'm with Hallam. I know full well that those fascist, capitalist, oligarch bastards are laughing up their sleeves at how easily they could pull this off with just a little bit of a media manipulation. And that's exactly what happened. Sven said he was surprised that Die Zeit, which is ordinarily a very good progressive uh, piece of or source of journalism, he said this was way out of their normal mode of reporting. That he said it, it was really surprising to him that it was so one-sided and that it was so inflammatory in terms of going against Hallam so quickly and so sharply. He said, that's not their normal journalism. Well, what does that tell you? That tells you somebody got to them. <laughs> I mean, likely. Yeah. I, can't, I have no evidence. There never is evidence, but that's quite likely. But anyway, that, I left XR when that guy pulled my ID because of what was going on with Roger. Originally, I said I wouldn't leave XR because of what was happening to Roger, but when the same thing, much smaller scale, dilettante activism, manipulation of, of back in the shadows information, an ID and an application that I really was using, I just said, you know, I'm done. Plus, my ex Orlando group was not growing. There's a, I used a, I'm writing just for the reader, listeners uh, yeah. to know, I'm kind of promoting something here. In my blog, I'm going to put up a blog post that tells this whole story of my Extinction Rebellion from start to finish. It'll be long, but it'll be, I'll make it as concise as I can. And it finishes up like with yesterday. And I'll probably have to post up this week. So, so when, when you say long, I've seen what your short 20-page posts are. hit pause right there so tune into our next episode as we continue the conversation send questions comments and suggestions to semiobytes at gmail.com semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by yedbrick and semio city that answers semitic questions via semiog analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between judaism and christianity Semiobytes is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin.